listening to audio from Faith Church, located on the north side of Indianapolis. If you'd like to check out more information about our church and ministry, please visit faithchurchindy.com. Well, good morning, everyone. I haven't been up here since last service, so my pages are all out of order, so I want to make sure they're in the right order, or it's going to sound real funny when I switch to the wrong page, which happens sometimes anyway, but... uh, Good to see you all, and uh, Dunker's good to see you back from Africa, and I'm sure I'm missing others that uh, would love to greet us well, but would you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? <clears throat> I'm reading from Proverbs chapter 14, and just one verse, verse 34. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. When in the course of human events it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with one another, and to assume among the powers of the earth a separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and nature's God entitle them, a decent respect to the opinions of man requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. So begins the Declaration of Independence adopted by the Continental Congress 245 years ago today. Actually, it was a decision made on the 2nd and then different days for signing. But anyway, somehow July 4 became the official birthday. I listened to Max McLean read to me the entire Declaration of Independence on the way in this morning. And uh, that was a, a great experience. And I would actually commend that to you. You just look it up and you can find it easily. But anyway, happy 4th of July. Uh, Linda and I were back at Connor Prairie on Friday evening for the Star-Spangled Symphony on the Prairie with the marvelous music of the ISO, uh, playing such things as themes from Gettysburg and the Patriot, the 1812 Overture, and other traditional staples for patriotic celebrations. And we had also the recitation of Lincoln's Gettysburg Address, in which he quite erroneously said that we would forget everything he said that day. We haven't forgot, Abe. Well, four score and seven years ago for Lincoln, 12 score and five years ago for us, a nation was born and was thus included in the community of nations for which God says righteousness exalts a nation, sin is a reproach to any people. Now we could ask, maybe you ask, maybe you question whether it was right for the colonies to rebel against mother country, England. Was the Declaration of Independence justified? There are biblical texts that might help us wrestle with that. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. Whoever rebels is rebelling against what God has instituted, Romans 13. And and that's not to be taken lightly. Uh, Yet the issue of the birth of nations is more complex than a command to individuals or to Christians in general to obey our government. And our founders were certainly conscious of and carefully thought about God's approval or displeasure in their actions 
with the very words appealing to the supreme judge of the world for the rectitude of our intentions and a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence. Now, I'd love to pursue that from a historical and biblical perspective, but this is church, not classroom. And uh, I'll just say that I personally, in my opinion, this is not a thus says the Lord thing. I personally believe the decision was justified and was providentially guided, but I realize that doesn't address all the questions and does not certainly does not settle the application of Proverbs 14.34. Righteousness exalts a nation. Sin is a reproach to any people. How does this fit in the context of Proverbs? Let Let me set the table before we jump into the verse. Proverbs begins with several sections under specific themes, but all in some sense described by the series theme, The Way of Wisdom. Pastor Jeff introduced our series in chapter 1 with wisdom and folly, the signature statement, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Chapters 2 and 3, the precious value of wisdom. Chapter 4, a father's instruction in wisdom. Chapter 5, a warning against adultery, followed by an amazing celebration of faithful, monogamous sexual love. And then, as Nicholas Piotrowski explained last week, isn't that an awesome name? My name is so boring compared to his But he preached on Lady Wisdom in chapter 8, but noted the three personifications of uh, women in this section. Chapter 8, Lady Wisdom is surrounded by Lady Lust in chapter 7 and Lady Folly in chapter 9. The book of Proverbs begins in chapter 1 with the heading, The Proverbs of Solomon, Son of David, King of Israel. Now you get through chapter 9, you come to chapter 10, and you get another heading. It just says again, The Proverbs of Solomon. That tells us that at least it was probably another, it's another section for, certainly probably another collection that eventually was brought together to have the book we have, for the book we have today. The difference starting with chapter 10 up through our text today is that each proverb now, instead of being a theme of several verses, each proverb is mostly isolated by itself. Uh, Yet it is a collection of proverbs with a common structure of antithetic parallelism. The righteous versus the wicked, the wise and the foolish, the lazy and the diligent good and evil, truth and lies, the simple and the prudent. Chapter 10, verse 1, a wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish son is a sorrow to his mother. Very typical Jewish poetic parallelism, but antithetic parallels. Wise son, foolish son, glad father, sad mother. Additionally, Almost all of these proverbs are applied to the individual. But near the end of this section, it goes from personal to national, at least in one verse. Righteousness exalts a nation. Sin is a reproach to any people. Do you see the parallels and the antithesis? Righteousness, sin, exalted nation, reproached people. Now, in my attempt to explain and apply this verse, I start with the question, what is a nation? 
uh, a, a, uh, the Hebrew word here is actually brought into English. Maybe we don't hear it a lot anymore, but it's fairly common in some places. It's the word goy or goyim, meaning non-Jews, the goyim or Gentiles, sometimes used as an insult. If you are not a Jew, you are goy, which is a bad thing from the standpoint of Jewish nationalism. You are unclean. You are a Gentile dog. And that's what most of us probably are here. We think of nations as identifiable countries, the 195 or so recognized countries in the world. And you can put any country into this proverb in place of nations. Uh, Righteousness exalts the United States of America. It exalts Canada, Mexico, Peru, Poland, Ukraine, Lebanon, Indonesia, Kenya, Guatemala, the Congo. Righteousness exalts any nation. But sin is a reproach to any people. But the word nation is used here is more than just a recognized country. It can be that with specific borders and a government structure. Uh, But in the Greek, it is ethnos or ethnicity, any people group or tribe which parallels people or peoples, no matter no matter how you divide or define groups of people, it can be a tribe or a country or really anything in between, and this proverb would still apply. But this proverb definitively speaks to us as American citizens, to nations and people groups of all kinds. So we must consider the truth. Righteousness exalts. Sin is a a reproach. So let's look at the first part of it. Righteousness exalts. What is righteousness? Well, it's what is right and good. It's yoked to justice and fairness, a sense of equity. Proverbs 1.3, if you'll look at it, for gaining wisdom and instruction, for understanding words of insight, for receiving instructions in prudent behavior, doing what is just and right and fair. You can't separate righteousness from justice and fairness. It's more than behavior. It includes behavior, certainly. It's the foundation for behavior in our view of the world and each other and the motivation of our hearts. Job defended himself by saying, I put on righteousness and it clothed me. It was characteristic of who he was, not just specific acts of righteousness, but the core of his being, his way of life. Proverbs 10 speaks of the tongue of the righteous and the heart of the wicked. So you see again that that antithesis there. The point is, is how you live, how you behave, but it's revealed by what you say and comes out from who you are at the heart of yourself. It is subjection to a norm of socially accepted behavior. That's Bruce Waltke's definition as he borrows from others and puts quotes together. But it is elementary, uh, it's foundationally rather what God entrusted to Adam and Eve at creation with the creation mandate to those who are image bearers of God distinct from animals to have dominion over the rest of creation under God's direction. There are standards, thus there are standards and laws that govern our sense of righteousness. 
But how do we know what that is? What is the norm of behavior? Who decides that norm? Well, I would immediately pick up my Bible and say, well, this is where you find the norms for behavior, the standards for righteousness. And I would hope that many of you would would do the same. But we don't start there, nor do we need to start there. Not everyone has the Bible or believes the Bible, and yet even without believing the Bible, even if they have one collecting dust in their house, there is still an innate sense of what is right and wrong in all people. Now, it's also, in some sense, rejected by all people. But it's there. America's Declaration of Independence speaks to this uh, the principal writer Thomas Jefferson, not a Christian by any biblical definition, particularly near the end of his life, he, he rejected many of the core doctrines of, of the Christian faith. Uh, but he had a, a common sense with the other delegates of the rightness of their cause based on the laws of nature and nature's God. A little vague, isn't it? What does that mean? Well, it is a reflection of the writings of the time and probably different nuances from different writers, but it's not without biblical foundation. There is a sense of right and wrong built into every person as those who are made in the image of God. Paul speaks of this in Romans 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Then he says, For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so that they're without excuse. He builds on it further in Romans 2. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they're a law to themselves. And that law to themselves can be used in a very negative way, but it's in a positive way here. A law to themselves, a self-governing of what's right and wrong, even though they don't have the law. They show the work of the law is written in their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. So everyone, all people, all nations, all leaders of nations are accountable to God for righteousness, right actions of justice and fairness toward all people, based on natural revelation. There's this innate, built-in awareness in us as imagers of God of rightness and wrongness, Christian or not. But we have more than that. We do have the specific commands and boundaries, requirements and prohibitions of Scripture, the Ten Commandments, the priority of loving God first of all and loving our neighbor as ourselves, specifics of what it means regarding life and relationships and human need and property and truth and motivation. And so righteousness exalts a nation. But then sin is a reproach. 
An alternate translation from the NIV gives a slightly different flavor, and I don't think it replaces the reproach uh, language of the ESV. It, It just simply, both are part of this. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin condemns any people. Now, what is sin? Well, it's disobedience to the law, the law that's written on your heart, the law that's written in this book. Whatever source of the law and will of God you have going against that law is sin that condemns. Ultimately, all sin is against God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's the ultimate definition, falling short of God's glory, God's perfections, who God is. Uh, to fall short of God's call as His image bearers to reflect and glorify Him in all of life is sin, sin that condemns. I still remember sitting in the hospital in Topeka, Kansas, next to my father who was dying and reading a book called Future Grace by John Piper. One of the opening lines was so helpful in understanding sin. Sin is what you do when your heart is not satisfied with God. That's the core of all sin right there. But what is it that determines whether a nation is righteous or wicked? Realizing that all nations are a combination of the two. Now, we might see some leaning this way and some leaning this way, no doubt about it. But um, what, what makes a nation righteous or wicked? I've just finished this uh, past week my annual reading of the books of Kings and Chronicles in the Bible, which ends with the destruction of Jerusalem, uh, the capture of her kings, the exile of her people, a terribly sad uh, time. And the whole history of Israel is a roller coaster ride on Proverbs 14.34. Righteousness exalts a nation, sin is a reproach to any people. Righteousness exalts a nation, sin is a reproach to any people. You read it in Exodus and throughout the Moses era, then Judges, all the way through Samuel, Kings, Chronicles, a roller coaster on this proverb. Righteousness exalts, sin condemns, but finally leading to destruction. And it's not just Israel. All nations rise and fall on Proverbs 14.34. Who is accountable? The people and their leaders. Israel was a united kingdom under David and Solomon, after which it was divided between Israel to the north and Judah and Jerusalem to the south. Each king is summarized as in two ways. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, or he did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. Nations are judged by their leaders who have a particular accountability as leaders. By me, kings reign and rulers decree what is just, Proverbs 8.15. It's an abomination to kings to do evil, for the throne is established by righteousness, Proverbs 16.12. Take away the wicked from the presence of the king. I'm not sure the context there. Perhaps the evil counselors that have a huge impact on any leader. Who do they have around them? Take away the wicked from the presence of the king, and his throne will be established in righteousness, Proverbs 25.5. And so today, world leaders serve under God. Nations and leaders instituted by God, installed by God, accountable to God, and will be judged by God. 
Putin in Russia, Xi Jinping in China, Kim Jong-un in North Korea, Joe Biden in North America, in America, and Donald Trump, and Barack Obama, and George W. Bush, and Bill Clinton, and George H.W. Bush, and on down the line. Leaders are accountable. Leaders will be judged. But the people are also accountable. Tracking the last few kings of Judah, Hezekiah was a good king with slippage in the end. Manasseh was a very bad king, the worst of all kings, but he repented and turned to God in the end. I expect to see Manasseh in heaven. Ammon was a bad king following his father in gross evil, but not in repentance. And then Josiah. Josiah, a very popular boy's name the last generation or so. Wonderful name. Josiah, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and followed the ways of his father, who is his ancestor 17 generations ago, before this, not his ancestor, his father David, not turning aside to the right or to the left. Now here's the story of Josiah. He leads a restoration of the temple and worship in Jerusalem. And during the restoration project, a book was found, brought to him, a lost or long-neglected book of the law, most likely the book of Deuteronomy. And uh, he read the book, and he broke down, realizing he was already seeking the Lord and seeking restoration, but he broke down and realized how grossly evil they had been and what they deserved. These are the curses of God on disobedience from the book of Deuteronomy paired with the blessing that comes from obedience. And so he led the nation in repentance, in great reforms, renewed the covenant, restored the temple and temple worship, celebrated the Passover in Jerusalem as it had not been celebrated for 400 plus years since the days of Samuel. But did that save the nation? No. Time had run out. God called a woman named Huldah, a prophetess, who sent a message to Josiah. She didn't go to him personally. She sent a message to him, commending him for who he was and what he was doing, but essentially saying, it's too late. It's too late. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will bring disaster upon this place and upon its inhabitants. All the curses that are written in the book, that convinces me it was Deuteronomy, that was read before the king of Judah, because they've forsaken me and made offerings to other gods that they might provoke me to anger and all the works of their hands. Therefore, my wrath will be poured out on this place and will not be quenched. Israel, Judah as God's chosen nation for the carrying out of his plan of redemption is a unique and wonderful place. The gospel is represented in story after story, the whole storyline of the Old Testament. 
The Savior himself comes through Israel from the line, Abraham, up through David. Comes to us, born in Bethlehem. So Israel has an accountability. You might say a higher accountability based on the privilege they had as God's chosen people. But that doesn't take away our accountability. Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, all the great empires of the ancient world. And I don't know my world history well enough to fill in all the blanks, but up to the more recent centuries, Spain, Great Britain, the United States, Russia, China, we're all accountable. Kings and people, presidents and prime ministers and people. But... We're not Russia. We're not China. As Americans, we need to look to ourselves, to our country for application. Righteousness exalts the United States of America, but sin is a reproach and condemns the United States of America. Is there a foundation of righteousness in this land? Well, it's definitely a mixed bag, historically and currently, but let's not flagellate ourselves looking only at the dark side. Consider perhaps the unmatched moral leadership in our history, particularly at different times, and our prosperity as a reflection of God's grace that he shed on this land. America the Beautiful may be a bit one-sided, and it is, but it still expresses great and marvelous truth that should cause us to give thanks to God for His blessings on this country. The preamble to the United States Constitution sets the standard high. Now, for the second time in my life, in my third time through high school, because I still didn't learn enough the first two times, uh, I've been an assistant teacher in our homeschool co-op for government. And the major project has been to paraphrase the Constitution. How many of you have paraphrased the Constitution? I don't know if I have any students in here or not. Uh, you say, what, why does it need paraphrasing? Well, if you've read it, you'll know why it needs paraphrasing. <laughs> it's a complex document. Some of it's very difficult to figure out. But... Um, I've read the Constitution at least 50 times, probably more than that, in the two rounds of doing this, of reading their paraphrases, correcting them, saying, no, that's not what the Constitution says, rethink that again, um, et cetera, et cetera. But the preamble to the Constitution sets the standard very high, and I don't think it does need paraphrasing. We made him do it anyway. Uh, but it's an amazing paraphrase, it's an amazing preamble. We, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, do ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. That's our national mission statement, rich with purpose. Pretty sound biblically as you analyze it. America has been a land of opportunity with arms 
open to the world. But it's also a land that, as Martin Luther King Jr. noted so well numerous times, was so slow to live up to its creed that all persons are created equal. Not all persons have been invited to share in the rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Not able to enjoy the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity. And so we must not be blind to the reality and the dark blot in our history of slavery and racism that has not been fully erased. And many trails of tears, not just one trail of tears for Native Americans being moved from Georgia to Oklahoma, but numerous trails of tears, the way people have been mistreated. Sin is a reproach to any people. There's been progress, but we should not accept things as they as they are. Lincoln's Gettysburg Address admitted as much 158 years ago as he referenced from the Declaration of Independence, a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. And in the midst of the horrific civil war to address some of these sins of America, put forth the resolve that these dead on the battlefields of Gettysburg shall have not died in vain and that this nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom. Marvelous message, short as it is. Two and a half minutes for the whole speech. Sorry, I'm not able to do that. But what followed? Reconstruction, the rise of the Klan in various contexts, Incredible brutality. And we've made progress. 1954, Supreme Court decision. We made progress with the Civil Rights Act. But this past year, since the death of George Floyd, it seemed to be a step backward with arguments about systemic racism and critical race theory that most of us don't even understand what we're talking about. Not really sure I do. I've got to try to understand it better. We don't want to get on the bandwagon of one side or the other. We need to think clearly and deeply before we speak. We must distinguish between patriotism and nationalism, especially suppose Christian nationalism is expressed on January 6th in the insurrection on the Capitol, a, a shameful display of such things as the cross. What is this, the Crusades again? Not exactly Christian, but Christian in name. The cross a faux gallows for the vice president for refusing to join the rebellion against the Constitution, the expression of supposed Christian prayers in the Senate chamber by those who unlawfully entered. Sin is a reproach to any people, and even worse, as blasphemous when committed in the name of Christ. We must not be proud boys or other groups that seem to inherit the spirit of the KKK who belittle blacks and Jews who turn to hatred and violence. The flip side of Antifa, both sides evil and harmful. 
sin is a reproach to any people. We must distance ourselves from a a false kind of patriotism that exalts in grossly immoral men and women of whatever party, yet respects in the body of Christ, yet respects the hard, hard decisions that have had to be made as we've gone to the ballot box in recent years. The political landscape is the most difficult to navigate in my memory as policy and character are increasingly incongruent in so many of our leaders. Evangelicals are condemned for being obsessed about abortion, but abortion, my friends, is not a minor issue. It's a flagrant offense against the promise of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, a horrifying violation of God's law against murder. 48 years, more than 50 million deaths. I've lost track of the number. I know it's higher than that. But sin is a reproach to any people. And growing more difficult as much ground has been lost in the uh, rush to uh, no longer be able to discern the difference between male and female and each one's complementary role in life and marriage and childbearing. A whole month is set aside to celebrate pride, pride in what God calls sinful. Corporate America is fully on board so that your job might be in jeopardy if you are not appropriately enthusiastic. Sin is a reproach to any people. Just heard that Miss Nevada USA is a man who thinks he's a woman. And what cruelty to him to encourage him in his confusion. This is the most foundational in the clearly stated binary of creation. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. That's not complex. Oh, men and women are complex. I know that. But the distinction, the fact that there's one of this kind and one of this kind, that's not difficult to understand. I don't need to identify myself with this made-up word cisgender. I guess that's what I am. But I'm a, a male, a man, and if I become confused about that, please come to my, my aid and help me to embrace the truth. Don't encourage me in the lie. Sin is a reproach to any people. frightening thing about this tra- trajectory is that I'm not sure to what extent it is the cause of the coming judgment of God on our land as even the church follows the culture into this brave new world of 1984. And I read both of those books recently that they're coming to fulfillment 90 years and 70 years later of doublespeak, and uh, completely destroying the concept of family and commitment. Or to what extent we're already in Romans 1, where the judgment of God is already manifest on us as the judgment is that God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity. For this reason God gave them up, or over to dishonorable passions. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. 
And as you read the end of Romans chapter 1, it's complete anarchy. A bloodbath in the streets. Which also seems to be fulfilled in our day. A world of unrestrained evil that doesn't even recognize it as evil, that calls the good bad and the bad good. So what do we do? Number one, don't start thinking we're going to fix this at the ballot box or through politics. We're not. Number one, start with the humbling of yourself. The humbling of the church together, hopefully. Go to Daniel 9 and Nehemiah chapter 1 and follow the model of these men who heard about what was going on in the culture, what was happening in Jerusalem, and they humbled themselves before God and they didn't pray, Oh God, forgive those sinners. They said, oh God, forgive us. We have sinned. We have done wrong. We have committed iniquity. Now, I don't think that means Daniel was doing it. But he didn't separate himself from the people. He identified with the people and considered a corporate confession of sin. Nehemiah did the same thing. Number two. Speak the truth in love, in the context of sharing the love of Jesus Christ who gave himself for every one of us, all of us, equally in need of a Savior. We've got so much to learn about this. I'm still trying to figure it out. We don't go after the particular reflection of error that a person has in their life or confusion. Oh, yes, we're available. We try to help. We try to encourage. Depending on where they are, we try to pull them back to biblical truth, yes. But, but to speak the truth in love, most of all, speaking the gospel to them, that we all equally need a Savior, unable to save ourselves, casting ourselves on the mercy of the one who died for us on the cross. I'm, I'm not saying don't be active politically. I think we should be involved in the culture and, and, and seek justice in laws and the application of the law. But the priority is the gospel. It's not our job to fix the world. Yes, to be salt and light, but to lead front and center all the time with the good news of Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Oh, great God, highest heaven, We are increasingly, as a people, moving into a, what's strangely called a brave new world, filled with confusion, the breakdown of family, 
the move toward more totalitarian expressions of government. Lord, we grieve these things, but the church has always been told that that's the kind of thing we're going to experience. That's where we're going to be in Athens, in Rome, and now in New York and Indianapolis. So, God, may we be humbled before you as we plead for our nation, but most of all as we, as light shining in the darkness, represent the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Oh, God, we are needy. We need you. Our hope is in Christ. And as we end our service today with communion, may, again, we humble ourselves, recognizing that you've done for us what we could not do for ourselves in sending us a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray.